episode 367 of the Bowery Boys, The Ice Craze, How the Ice Business Transformed New York. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Today, Greg, with a very chilly story for everybody Mm -hmm. about a very important industry uh, during the 19th and early 20th centuries. This is a tale of ice. So 200 years ago, before the refrigeration process, how did people keep things cool during hot weather? The natural solution, of course, was ice, but where did you find that in New York outside of the winter months? Well, in this story, we're going to discuss the ice trade of the Northeast, a thriving industry involving the harvesting and storage of ice in such a way that it could be enjoyed even on a hot New York day. What is this sorcery, you might be asking? (laughs) Uh, Although people... People have been using natural ice for many centuries. The ice business, as it is, was invented in the United States in 1806. And by the mid-19th century, New York was the largest consumer of ice. People ate ice cream, put ice cubes in their water. Uh, They even mixed up a few early cocktails with crushed ice. (laughs) Yes. Ice was a commodity like gas, coal, and wood. And like those things, it was subject to the unregulated business tactics of the Gilded Age. And in fact, in the year 1900 came an explosive scandal involving the mayor of New York, members of the Democratic political machine Tammany Hall, and many other prominent politicians. And it was a scandal all about ice. So in the first part of the show today, we're going to introduce the ice industry, walk through the basics of the ice trade. Greg, you know I'm very excited about that. <laughs> Talking about how, how New Yorkers got ice and how they kept ice in restaurants, how it transformed the food industry um, and shops and homes and such. And in the second part of our show, we'll discuss that scandal and whatever happened to the ice trade. Now, you know, I must say, this seemed like a kind of weird subject to do as a show <laughs> when we started when we started the research here. But but by the time we uncovered the the entire story here, I must say I'm kind of in awe of this concept. It just it seemed like such hard work, but people really wanted cold things back then, you know? How good an ice cold glass of water or beer tastes on a hot day. Oh yeah. Now, imagine that being a rare experience with this particular ice making an incredible journey to your glass. It might not have been clear ice or even clean ice, but it certainly <laughs> cooled cooled off your drink and it felt nice. So pour yourself a cold one right now as we chip into the chilly tale of New York and the ice trade. So today's show is about the ice trade, or the frozen water trade, as some call it, which was a thriving business during the 19th and early 20th centuries. 
naturally, of course, people have been making ice and using ice for thousands of years. It's, a, it's essential to human civilization. Yes, from the ancient Mesopotamians to the Greeks and Romans, up through 18th century colonists in the United States. Historically, people have used ice that they collected from mountaintops and frozen lakes and rivers. But this generally meant that ice then was really only available to people who lived in colder climates or who could fetch it from a mountaintop and store it, perhaps, for later use. But in the early 19th century, an American businessman would turn this naturally produced frozen water into a big business. So this story begins in 1783. That's the year that the British surrendered and left North America. And it's also the year that Frederick Tudor was born in Boston to a well-off family. They're Tudors, after all. We haven't even made an ice pun, and you whip out a Tudor pun? Now, Frederick's family enjoyed a very large country manor in the town of Rockwood, Massachusetts, which had a couple intriguing perks. First, it sat near a large pond which froze solid for two months at least every winter, and that manor had its own ice house. And an ice house, you mean a storage place, an outdoor storage place for ice. Mm -hmm. Was this a modern invention? Well, yes and no. I mean, for thousands of years, of course, you know, people were gathering ice, as, as you mentioned, but they would be using caves or they would construct underground rooms or cellars to store the ice that would keep for a couple months. But by the 17th century, you could find freestanding ice houses with insulation throughout Europe. But, you know, no surprise, these were for, of course, very wealthy people. So it was nice ice if you could get it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, it was, but it was definitely then a luxury. Yes. And, and the Tudor family was one of the fortunate who had their own ice house. Yes, uh, Frederick was able to always enjoy the benefits of making ice cream and chilly drinks. So Tudor then conjured a crazy idea with the help of his brother William to cut and ship ice from his pond to other countries. In February of 1806, he purchased his own ship because this idea was so wacky that you know no other ships could even be found to uh, be hired for the job. So he filled his own ship with blocks of ice from the Rockwood Pond and sailed it to the Caribbean, specifically in this first voyage to the country of Martinique. In 1806, I mean, this must have sounded like a really wacky idea. He was taking ice from the north, from Massachusetts, all the way down to the Caribbean. I mean, like, was he considered kind of crazy? It was actually widely mocked as you might suspect, with one newspaper Riley commenting, quote, No joke, a vessel has cleared at the Custom House for Martinique with a cargo of ice. We hope this will not prove a slippery speculation, unquote. <laughs> but I mean, and this would have been weird because people thought it would melt, right? That it wouldn't be able to make the voyage. It doesn't make any logical sense at all to, to be carting frozen water over thousands of miles of other kinds of water to another country. <laughs> Well, the trip was more or less a failure um, because, after all, nobody in Martinique really had a way of storing ice, you know, from a hot island environment. 
But Tudor, you know, continued regardless for many years, almost going bankrupt in the process because, of course, he had to build his own ice houses in those climates where they obviously had no ice houses. Pretty soon, though, you know, he was operating a a pretty steady business with many major clients in the American southern states and even in cities as far away as New Orleans. And it wasn't until the 1820s that the business actually became profitable for Frederick Tudor. And once that happened, of course, other competitors would then enter the market. It was no longer a wacky business model. And it would take him this long, 15 or 20 years, to actually even build up a market, an appetite, a need for Mm -hmm. ice, because these People were not used to ice. They didn't have ice and they had other ways of, you know, preserving their food, smoking it or pickling it or whatever, you know, drying it, whatever they needed to do. So he was also creating demand. It was not a viable option until this moment, right? And what about New York? I mean, was he also trying to sell to the New York market? Well, this big burgeoning ice trade actually did not target New York at first because, of course, the city had very healthy winters at time, and the rivers would often freeze, and you know, ice in small quantities could be transported from places up the Hudson River. I mean, even the East River used to freeze, right? Right. But, and just with Tudor's house in Massachusetts, some wealthy residents would sometimes have personal ice houses or even ice wells, mm. which would be you know, insulated, but again, a luxury. But with the success of Tudor's business, New Yorkers began to wonder if the same type of trade couldn't be developed here as well. Well, after all, they had the Hudson River right there. I mean, potentially a source of ice when parts of it would freeze. And it was, of course, a way of transporting the ice, floating it down to its market. Yeah. And in fact, Tom, I'm going to take us now to a place near Nyack, New York, called Rockland Lake. Not to be confused with Tudor's Rockwood Pond. That made my notes a little bit of a nightmare early on. (laughs) Um, So Rockland Lake is about 25 miles up the Hudson River from what would have been the center of New York in the 1830s. The lake was not only known for its clean water, but it froze all the time during the winter and was extremely close to the Hudson River. In fact, it was just separated by the Hudson by a steep incline. Okay. So in 1826, an enterprising New Jersey farmer decided to cut large blocks of ice out of the lake, then slid them down the hill to a vessel that was awaiting on the Hudson River. Then they sailed that ship all the way down to Greenwich Village where the ice was then transferred into a series of darkened storage cellars. Wow, Rockland Lake ice being stored and sold in Greenwich Village. And I guess it could keep, it could keep cold for months if it was properly insulated. And, and people rushed to take advantage of this brand new opportunity. In 1831, three businessmen founded the Knickerbocker Ice Company here at Rockland Lake, modernizing the process and eventually even building a little railroad that would move the ice from the lake to the steamships on the Hudson River, all destined for New York and other localities. By the 1850s, they would employ 13 steamboats and dozens of different barges uh, during the very first months of the year, just cutting ice and then shipping it downstream. So Knickerbocker starts shipping ice down to the city to sell in 1831. Mm -hmm. That must have been a game changer for 
for businesses in New York in the 1830s and 40s and 50s. Yeah, and then think of the growth of New York around this period, the 1830s and 40s, not just with the rising number of newly arriving immigrants, but the rising wealth of the city in general, thanks to the Erie Canal and the growing influence of Wall Street. Uh, So this brought in large luxury hotels like the Astor House, which would use ice in many different ways. This is also the era of the first elegant restaurants, such as Delmonico's. Now, you'll get into the specifics in a minute, but all of these places were generating new and interesting uses for ice. And were New York residents using, at this time, using ice in their homes? Soon enough. Um, It was still for, you know, the wealthy, but... Very important to the story is the invention of the ice box, which was a home appliance and a precursor to the refrigerator that was designed using a wide variety of different insulation materials, which allowed ice to remain solidified, you know, for a few days. Now, the true era of the ice box would actually be the early 20th century, which by then would be a common appliance for most homes. But here in the mid 19th century, smaller businesses that provided perishables from meats to produce. Well, they could install one in their stores, finally. And I'm going to take us into some of those meat markets and fruit sellers, Greg, and and into people's ice boxes (laughs) themselves in just a minute. But it sounds then that by the mid-19th century, ice is a thing. It's like Mm -hmm. a, a new craze in New York. Well, to quote from an article in the magazine DeBow's Review from 1855, quote, In workshops, composing rooms, counting houses, workmen, printers, clerks club to have their daily supply of ice. Even in New York, there are a number of families who ice their croton drinking water. It is considered by physicians as a tonic, but in excess, as in the use of intoxicating liquors, will in all probability produce diarrhea. (laughs) (laughs) Ew. So some people were getting sick from their ice? I ask, dumping ice cubes out of my my drink right here? (laughs) Just dump them out. (laughs) Well, in that particular example, you know, imagine that the alcohols of the mid-19th century were not really the safest things in the world to drink in the first place. Mm-hmm. Like all that absinthe? Yeah, exactly. I mean, Knickerbocker Ice Company, you know, now had several competitors by this point, and although a great number of them claimed to have drinking water from Rockland Lake, in fact, it could actually come from anywhere. Many companies even sold ice from the Hudson River itself. Which by the 1850s was already quite polluted. Yeah, this would kind of be like filling up a bottle of water from a puddle and then slapping a pollen spring label upon it. (laughs) But by the time that Frederick Tudor died in 1864, ice was big business in the United States and New York City had become the country's largest consumer of ice. And then... In that decade, the 1860s, a new source of ice would start hitting the streets in New York. And that would be ice from the Kennebec River in Maine. From Maine? Mm Mm-hmm. Why would New Yorkers be receiving ice all the way from Maine? Well, now that New Yorkers had a thriving thirst for ice and there were more and more people moving to New York with that thriving need for ice, companies were unable to keep up with that demand during years with a mild winter, which New York sometimes has. 
The seasons, however, are far more consistent up in Maine, thus it always had a robust supply of ice available. So at first, Maine ice was a supplemental to the more local sources of ice. But by the end of the 19th century, as we'll get to, it would nearly dominate the market. Plus, as you mentioned, they knew how to insulate the ice and transport it effectively. But I think we need to step back for a moment and just discuss how this ice was actually produced. I mean, we know that ice is frozen water, (laughs) but I mean... By Mother Nature, (laughs) Greg. Well, at least for most of the 19th century, ice was made by cutting it into giant blocks from natural Mm -hmm. sources, you know, which in the case of customers in New York City were usually these lakes up the Hudson or in New England, and then shipping it down to the city. And this cutting up and preparing of the ice for sale was called ice harvesting. Wow, ice harvesting. So say, you know, we wanted to go out right now and harvest some ice. Yeah. Um, How does one even start doing that. It's not like harvesting a field of corn. Well, in in some respects, it is. Stick with me. I mean, first, Mm -hmm. we need to find a body of water that would freeze during the winter. So let's say it's the 1860s, and you and I have a farm up the Hudson River, Mm -hmm. okay? Uh, Say near, you know, Kingston, Hudson up there. Um, Very trendy. (laughs) And we've got a nice small lake on the farm. Okay. The lake is going to be our source. Now, it just needs to freeze to the right depth, okay? We don't want a small layer of ice, after all. We want to make sure that these blocks are thick enough to sell to people in the city for use in their ice boxes. So the lake really needs to to freeze, which it starts doing in December. Now, by January, uh, because it's been really cold for a number of weeks, we need to check to see how thick that layer of ice is. So we head out to the lake wearing these special shoes with spikes in them, and we drill holes down through the ice taking measurements. And so what happens if they measure and they realize that it's too thin? Well, we would have some options. Um, We could just head back inside and let nature do its thing for a few more weeks, you know, hoping that it stays cold or even gets colder so that the ice thickens. Or... As the author Mariana Gosnell points out in her 2005 book, Ice, the Nature, the History, and the Uses of an Astonishing Substance, we could actually drill more holes in the ice down to the water, intentionally hitting the water, which would then effectively flood the lake, right? It would release more water to the surface, which would then freeze faster because it would be exposed. And that would then more quickly give us a few more inches of ice. Once the ice was about 15 inches thick, we'd be ready to harvest it. And for that, I I assume you just pull out your big ice saws and begin like cutting it into blocks? Well, actually, there's a whole intricate process um, and special tools that were made just for this. And many of these were tools developed by an inventor named Nathaniel Wyeth. He developed them for Frederick Tudor up in Massachusetts, who you were just talking about. Mm -hmm. We will need to hire lots of people to help with this ice harvesting. Most of them will probably be farmers and other laborers who are looking for work during the winter months. They would first need to clean and polish the ice before it would be cut up into blocks. Because obviously, nobody's going to want to use ice in something they're going to consume if it's from like the top layer of a pond. (laughs) Right. So... 
A team of horses would be used to pull scrapers, ice scrapers, over the ice, scraping up all the dirt and the impurities that had settled on that top layer. And once these horses have finished, you know, hoofing it across the lake, then men or boys would sort of scoot behind them, scoop through and clean up after the horses. I assume you mean sweeping up the ice shavings? That and also cleaning up literally after the horses. Oh, okay. I mean, when you've got a when you've got a team of horses pulling a scraper across a pond, they're going to leave their mark, and we're <laughs> we're not going to dwell on this, okay? But these cleanup boys would glide through, wiping up manure and urine off of the freshly shaved ice, and polishing it down. And what precisely are they polishing with? Formaldehyde. You're, wait, really? Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> it, I mean, it made it shiny, Greg. In any case, once it's been cleaned up and shined, then they would mark off a border around the ice to be harvested with like a three-inch groove in it. And then into that groove, place a special plow that contained two blades, um, one to follow the groove and the other to cut a perfectly straight new groove in the ice basically cutting parallel grooves into the ice and then turning at a right angle and doing the same thing uh, at a 90-degree angle, creating a giant grid of ice blocks. Like a giant crossword puzzle here. Yeah, or a checkerboard. A checkerboard, okay. Mm -hmm. And then we would grab our saws and cut through those grooves into the water, dislodging them, and then with giant poles, gliding the blocks through the water and then probably cutting them down further once we got them out of the lake. I hope that wasn't too much detail, but it certainly answers the question of how this ice <laughs> harvested. I don't, I don't have any questions. <laughs> so then they would cart off these large ice blocks and place mm -hmm. them in one of these aforementioned ice houses, which I guess there would be an industrial-sized ice house um, for these oh. companies. There were huge ice houses, ice warehouses that were located along the Hudson River. During the peak ice days of the 1880s, there were actually 135 large ice warehouses located along the Hudson River. Warehouses that were insulated with, you know, sawdust, wood, straw, random fillings, charcoal, anything really to keep the thousands of giant blocks of ice inside ice cold. And of course, then when they were ready, uh, these companies would barge or ship their ice down to New York City where it would be offloaded from the docks and then transported to ice houses here in the city. Right. Some of the companies kept ice houses, warehouses around the city. Others actually just shipped, carted their ice directly off of the ships and distributed them to homes and businesses via ice carts. And this is really just a defining image of the 19th century. These ice men mm -hmm. uh, pulling ice carts um, from door to door. Yeah. The ice man carteth. <laughs> According to the Encyclopedia of New York City, by the 1880s, there were 1,500 ice sellers uh, selling ice from carts in the city. Often Italian immigrants who were quite vociferous and colorful in their ice vending techniques. <laughs> So we've gotten this ice out of the lakes, down the river, into New York, and into our homes or businesses. What exactly am I using this ice for? 
here in, say, the you know mid and late 19th century? Well, if you're a restaurant who would, by the way, probably get a nice delivery daily, mm-hmm. um, you'd be using it to keep your meat and fish and dairy products cold and, you know, prevent spoilage. And of course, keeping your drinks cool. Oh, right. Yeah. By plopping, you know, ice cubes into the drinks, which would immediately cool them. But don't forget that that also causes the cubes to melt into the drinks and thus dilute the drinks. Mm -hmm. Or you would be setting your drinks themselves on ice in order to cool it. At the risk of getting too technical, let's just say that ice can be applied to the outside of a beverage as well, you know, like a bottle of wine. And the cubes themselves will extract the heat out of the wine, which will melt the ice. So you can thus cool the wine without diluting it with water, which is something I would I, I never thought I'd be explaining on the show. <laughs> but it's how people enjoyed chilled champagne. Right, without yeah. plopping ice cubes inside. Yeah. <laughs> and if we're running a restaurant, you could also make ice cream. Yes, ice cream is made actually using a very similar principle to what I just said for chilling wine. You you put the cream and sugar and vanilla or flavor in a container inside a larger bowl that's actually filled with ice and salt and then start churning the cream. And that ice mixture then actually extracts the heat out of the cream, which then freezes it into an ice cream as you churn it. Ice cream, as you had mentioned before, had become very popular as ice had become available in the early 19th century, but it was a luxury item because ice was so expensive. Mm -hmm. However, in the 1840s, a woman named Nancy Johnson would invent and be awarded the first patent for an ice cream maker in Philadelphia, a device that was very similar to those hand-cranked ice cream makers that, you know, you might have at home right now. Mm -hmm. This little machine would actually make it possible for shops to produce their own ice cream very quickly. And as more ice came into New York and as ice became more affordable, ice cream then became much cheaper and extremely popular with the public. And whatever happened to Nancy Johnson, I hope she became the first ice cream millionaire in the country. Alas, Greg, she would sell her patent for that artificial freezer, as she called it, for $200 Oof. to an inventor named William G. Young. No, no relation, I don't think. I should check. <laughs> you should. We should. That would be surprising. <laughs> and of course, you know, this ice was coming t- into New York and being used in all sorts of different industries, especially beer brewers, the number of which were growing with each passing decade. And of course, you know, ice would be very important in the enjoyment of beer. And nobody wants to drink warm beer. Mm -mm. By the 1860s, ice was allowing those brewers to brew year round, even during the hot summer months. And markets used ice to keep their products fresh, as did food processors and distributors in the city. Because suddenly with ice, meat and fish could keep fresh much longer. And the ice, of course, helped preserve the food when it was traveling to and from New York. It could actually be shipped to places as well. Right. Fruits and vegetables, meats, fish, milk, they could all keep fresh longer in transit if the ships or the trains uh, that were carrying them had ice-powered refrigeration. Fishing boats, for example, could use ice to keep their catches fresh. And railroad cars refrigerated with ice called reefers 
Mm. were patented by a man named J.B. Sutherland in Detroit in the 1860s. These freight cars were cooled by ice. These reefers, Greg, (laughs) uh, would uh, imagine how this impacted the markets. For example, fresh peaches from Georgia, uh, fresh oranges from Florida, grapes from California. They could now be transported and sold in New York City. Meat that was slaughtered and dressed in Chicago could be sold in New York meat markets. By the 1870s, butter from the Midwest could take ice-chilled trains to New York and then either be sold there or actually even be exported in ice-cooled ships to Europe. Wow, it's like a veritable reefer madness. (laughs) Oh, God. Do be serious, Greg. (laughs) And then finally, of course, private homes would continue to find new and interesting uses for ice, you know, in their homes. Yeah, and in many of the same ways that those restaurants were using ice, right, to preserve food in their ice boxes to cool their drinks. The city, by the 1880s, had become dependent on ice. It was using about 1.9 million tons of ice every year. That is a number that is incomprehensible to most people. (laughs) So I I converted it to pounds. Um, 3.8 billion pounds of ice were being used by the city every year. Wow. And soon, one man would attempt to take over the entire ice market in New York. We'll get to Charles Morse and the Ice Trust scandal of 1900 after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. 
But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free, right now on Wondery Plus. So, Tom, we've done a lot of shows in recent years on this very important decade of the 1890s. The years of social reform and anti-corruption in city government, you know, a strong pushback to the antics of the Democratic machine, Tammany Hall. And it's also, of course, the year that the city of New York and the city of Brooklyn and many of the surrounding districts decided to consolidate into one city. The Consolidation of Greater New York, which went into effect on January 1st, 1898, and gave us the five boroughs of New York City. And it also gave the city a new mayor, the very first for the residents of this Greater New York. His name was Robert A. Van Wyck. Oh, he of the expressway? Yes, And I'm going to put an asterisk right by his name right there uh, in terms of pronunciation. We'll get to that in a few minutes. And if he's got an entire expressway named after him, I'm assuming then that he, he must have been a very strong and successful leader. Well, actually, he wasn't at all. Um, The expressway is named, uh, you know, for a thoroughly unimpressive, corrupt politician with a extremely thin resume. (laughs) They must have been running low on names. (laughs) But he was handpicked by the boss of Tammany Hall, Richard Croker, who intended to take advantage of this brand new electoral landscape to reascend into political power after years of being investigated by reformers in the 1890s. He even fled to Europe for a few years and, and returned in a grand manner to specifically endorse Van Wyck for this 1897 election. So then Van Wyck wins election, sweeps into office, and then brings Tammany and all of the filth of Tammany along with him. Croker and Tammany Hall began filling new government jobs with cronies and gave new work projects to those who were beholden to the political machine. Okay, so Van Wyck then was a compromised Tammany-backed politician, mm-hmm. the, the new consolidated city's first mayor. But what, if anything, did he have to do with this story of ICE? Well, he's very involved, but I guess I need to like step back and lay out what has been happening in the ICE trade here during the 1890s. So by this time, just generally speaking in the country, you have many industries that are gelling into monopolies, where one corporation dominates the supply chain of a particular product thus allowing them to manipulate prices and the availability of that product. So, you know, this is the era, we've talked about this before, this is the era of Carnegie Steel, J.D. Rockefeller's Standard Oil, on and on. Trust us, we've covered it. (laughs) And this was also the era of the ice monopoly, at least for the supply here in New York, which was, of course, America's largest consumer of ice at the time. Now, remember earlier in the story when I talked about the Kennebec River in Maine? 
Right, the river in Maine that became a, a major supplier of ice to the city. Mm-hmm. Well, in 1856, a man named Charles W. Morse was born in Bath, Maine, which is right here on the Kennebec River. And this town, ice was a major industry here. Bath was also a maritime town, and the Morses were major figures in shipping at the time, trading not only in ice, but also in lumber, and becoming increasingly wealthy in a ruthless age of robber barons and rapid corporate mergers. But during this time, in the 1880s, Maine had been supplementing the ice that was being sold in New York, but most of the city's ice was still coming uh, from sources along the Hudson River. But... Morse would have Mother Nature on his side because in the year 1890, New York experienced an extremely mild winter, which produced very little ice at all. Maine, however, is a more reliable place for ice production. So Morse took advantage of this particular year, this one weather phenomenon, took advantage of this and got a stronger presence in the New York market very quickly. Then, over the next few years, Morse began buying up all these little ice companies along the Hudson River and then in other local places and over in Brooklyn, for instance, one by one, little by little, gathering them all up so that by 1895, with all of these companies under his belt, he had a huge concern and renamed it the Consolidated Ice Company. It sounds huge. But even so, the old Knickerbocker Ice Company that you talked about before was still around at this period, right? Still making ice, selling ice that was produced up in Rockland Lake. Well, not for very much longer because the next year, 1896, they were absorbed into consolidated ice. In fact, Morse controlled so many ice concerns so quickly that the press garnered him the nickname the Ice King of New York. By 1897, then, he was living in New York, and then two years later, in 1899, he incorporated a new company in New Jersey called the American Ice Company, which controlled virtually all the ice manufacturing and distribution in the Northeast, from Washington, D.C. to Maine. About 80% of the entire industry in the American corridor where it was used the most— and at a time when the demand for ice was only growing greater. So then by 1899, you've got Charles Morse, who is the ice king of the city and the Northeast, Mm -hmm. and Robert Van Wyck, mayor of the new consolidated city of New York City. And I guess what links these two men was Tammany Hall. And I'm assuming (laughs) that Mr. Morse here was Tammany's kind of guy. Oh, (laughs) Oh, yeah, as we'll find out there, they're very closely aligned. So Boss Croker here, through Van Wyck, was filling all these government positions with Tammany men, meaning that people were allowed to continue doing business as long as they played Tammany's regular games here of graft and kickbacks. And since Morse and American Ice Company was closely aligned with Tammany Hall then, Companies that were not associated with Morse were told to vacate their positions at the dock and were instead replaced with ships from Morse's company. So other ice companies couldn't even unload their shipments in New York Harbor? No, they were slowly being shut out of all of the docks, which were controlled by Tammany men. 
And there were other restrictions that were placed upon dealers and restaurants. Even ice cream saloons were under threat here with having their ice cut off entirely if they didn't buy from American Ice Company. This domination then allowed Morse to drastically increase the cost of ice in April of 1900 across the board, okay, in many different complicated ways. For for many businesses, the price actually went up from 25 cents for 100 pounds of ice to 60 cents. So that's more than double. Wow. And then just as inexplicably and suddenly, they got rid of the more cheaply sold smaller packets, smaller chunks of ice that had been sold at five and 10 cents. Which strikes you as, you know, particularly heartless, given that those were probably the only ice sizes that New Yorkers of more modest and and poor New Yorkers could afford. They were ruthless in their techniques here. And was there any explanation at all for this sudden jump in prices? Well, Morse claimed that it was because of a poor crop of ice on the Hudson River. But this could be easily disproven. Most everyone saw through it. And quite quickly, the press began snooping around. And very quickly, it became exposed as a major blatant scam. And this price hike occurred during the spring of 1900. Mm-hmm. When, when was the story exposed? Well, very, very quickly, actually. Uh, and first by the New York Times, and then other papers would pile on. And they would trace these connections all the way to the top. From the New York Times, May 5th, 1900. Headline, Mayor Van Wick in Maine. Quote, Mayor Van Wick was a guest of Charles W. Morse, president and organizer of the American Ice Company, which controls the natural ice of the eastern states. The gentleman declined to be interviewed on the ice question. From there, the Times and other newspapers begin piecing together the connections. But it was the New York Journal that's the paper that's the most connected to uncovering the Ice Trust scandal. The New York Journal, William Randolph Hearst's newspaper. In fact, uh, Hearst, based on his newspaper's reporting, called up the New York Attorney General and asked if they would begin an investigation into Charles Morse. Then in June, the newspaper got its hands on the ledgers of the American Ice Company, including a secret list of stockholders. And included on that list were dozens of men connected to Tammany Hall, including New York's dock commissioners. And there, with thousands of shares of company stock, was the mayor of New York, Robert Van Wick. He reportedly held $680,000 in company stock. What? Which is extraordinary because his salary as mayor at the time was only $15,000. $680,000 worth of stock, and you're talking about in like $1,900. Yes, today that would be valued at $21 million. This would be outrageous. Basically, the company had been blatantly paying off the mayor of New York City. And that the mayor was profiting handsomely from people getting squeezed here by the ice company. And by the way, many of these people who voted and put him into office. Oh, right. Yeah. And and people weren't really even mad that American ice was a monopoly. It's just that they were so brazenly operating in ways that were both outlandish and cruel. 
But the outcry was so severe that summer that prices eventually then went down. And because of that, and because of their poor reputation, other independent ice companies were able to then break into New York by the end of the year. The company, American Ice, would continue to operate for many years, but no longer with Morse. He manipulated some stock, left the company with $12 million, and then went off to some other sketchy, nefarious adventures involving shipping and finance, which we won't get into here. In fact, he lived into the Great Depression and died in 1933. And, and whatever happened to Mayor Van Wyck? Well, he did stay in office, believe it or not. But because of this and other scandals, once again, tarnishing Tammany Hall, they were all swept out of office by 1901. And Van Wyck was actually replaced by a fusion candidate uh, named Seth Lowe. Seth Lowe, he of Columbia College fame. Van Wyck eventually moved to Paris, and he died there in 1918, although he's buried in Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx. And I finally have just one more thing to add here. I've been saying Van Wyck this whole time because we say Van Wyck Express Expressway. Oh, right. Yeah. But in fact, most likely the common pronunciation of his name would have been Van Wyck. Whoa. And so it's probably Van Wyck Expressway, FYI. Whoa. And whatever happened to the American Ice Company? Well, I mean, they continued to do business here well into the decade, but... Let's just say in the new century, the prospects of this industry in general were rapidly melting. (laughs) Yes. And that would be, of course, because of developments in the mechanical production of ice and mechanical refrigeration. You know, rewinding for one second, during the mid-19th century, in the midst of all of this pond freezing and the making and the shipping and the storage of this naturally produced ice that we've been talking about, ice innovators had found ways to produce ice mechanically. They'd been experimenting with various um, methods that included the evaporation and the expansion of different gases. This included people like John Gorey, who was a, a pharmacist in Apalachicola, Florida, who in the 1850s was compressing and then expanding air in order to produce heat and subsequently causing water to freeze into blocks of ice. But did this really catch on in the 1850s? Well, initially, consumers thought this was just a novelty, and it was even referred to and would continue to be referred to as artificial ice or even plant ice. Because it just didn't really sound that appetizing. You know, ice that was kind of spit out of a machine. Wouldn't you rather enjoy some naturally produced ice? I don't know about natural with all those horses and the formaldehyde, but sure, sure. <laughs> it's, it sounds cleaner. Cleaner, I'm not sure about because the machinery had a nasty habit of exploding, you know, all those gases. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the gases and chemicals would also like leak and seep into the ice itself. And that meant, actually, that at least early on, this artificial ice didn't have that same crystal clear appearance as the natural ice. Mm -hmm. It was a little bit foggier. So, you know, in the early days, this artificial ice had had a bad reputation. But it would be developed, it would be improved upon, and the production costs would also be lowered. Soon, this artificial ice would become a reliable way to manufacture ice commercially. 
But even still, I, I must think that people would just rather throw in some natural ice into their beverage as opposed to this artificial stuff. Well, certainly at first, yeah. And in those early days, artificial ice would be mostly used by industrial users. Mm -hmm. But according to Mariana Gosnell's ice book, artificial ice and plant ice would really catch on. Consider this. In 1889, during the height of the ice craze, there were only about 200 mechanical ice plants in the United States. But 20 years later, in 1909, the country had more than 2,000 artificial ice plants. Well, I think one great advantage here to the artificial ice is it wasn't tethered to the seasons, right? You could just mm -hmm. make artificial ice year-round and really in any place. Yeah, and that actually became even more obvious during that warm winter, that ice famine that you were talking about in 1890, 1891. There was a very small ice crop along the Hudson Valley, but during which the mechanical plants just kept on pumping out new ice blocks. So here by the end of the late 19th century, you actually had two factions, two styles of ice, the natural ice and the artificial ice. And they were duking it out over whose ice was better, whose was colder, whose was pure. You know, the natural ice camp certainly had the upper hand at the beginning. But by the 1890s, there was a new problem. You know, waterways were becoming so polluted. You mentioned the Hudson River, but mm -hmm. others were too. Lakes, you know, that had factories next to them. They were dumping God knows what into these water sources. You know, did you really want to cool your drink down with ice that might have chemicals, you know, belched into it from a nearby factory? Well, now that you say that, I think the artificial ice sounds like a purer option or would get to be a purer option. Yeah, it was kind of an ironic twist on the story. <laughs> By 1914, the production of artificial ice in the United States would actually surpass that of natural ice for the first time. But the entire ice industry would get a boost from World War I with the war effort, you know, as we were sending food over to Europe and using tons and tons and tons of ice just to keep it all fresh on the voyage over. But following the war in the 1920s, things would really turn bad for the ice industry. They were worried about something else. The introduction of the mechanical refrigerator for home use. Obviously, this is a device that plugs into the wall using electrical power that could chill things without ice. Right. You know, this concept was not new in the 19-teens because some railroads and ships, they'd been developing chilled containers and cars since the 1870s. They were able to devise ways to chill without ice using chilling plants, you know, entire like rooms with, with compressors to chill the air. But you weren't going to, like, put a chilling plant in your home or apartment, right? But in 1911, the General Electric Company introduced the very first electrical refrigerator. It was essentially a device that sat on top of one of those old ice boxes. It was a very exciting development, although it was kind of scary looking and it was expensive. And these home refrigerators really wouldn't catch on until the 1920s and then really pick up speed in the 1930s. And I have to say, Greg, it was confusing because I was searching through old newspaper ads from the mm -hmm. 1920s looking for refrigerator ads. As one does in our business. <laughs> That's right. I came across ads 
for marvelous looking, quote, refrigerators, right? Like the bone siphon uh, refrigerator, the, the king of all refrigerators. In a New York Times ad on May 8th, 1921, it sounds fabulous. Bone had this showroom at Fifth Avenue and 46th Street. They said that their refrigerators were used in Pullman cars, on trains that were moving fruit from California, etc. Sounds exquisite. But then I got to the part in the ad that mentions its ice consumption and how this model uses less ice than other leading refrigerators. And I realized that the ad that I was reading was for a refrigerator that was still running on ice. It was basically an old wooden ice box with three doors, including one that you plopped your ice cube in, your ice block into. So this is a confusing aspect of the story. They were calling these ice boxes refrigerators. So really nothing like the refrigerators in our homes today, but just very, very, very fancy ice boxes. And, and actually that same year, in, in an issue of the Daily News from April 5th, 1921, there was a full-page ad for an electric refrigerator show that was taking place at the New York Edison Company, uh, located at Irving Place and 15th Street, the precursor to Con Ed. Extolling the virtues of automatic refrigeration, electrical refrigeration, says refrigerating boxes and machines will be shown for homes, apartments, hotels, restaurants, grocery and delicatessen stores, meat, fish, fruit and vegetable markets, dairies, confectioners, ice cream manufacturers and florists. Everyone is invited. And that's just another reminder here of all the many different kinds of businesses that were using ice and were using these Mm -hmm. ice boxes and now could just flip over to this more improved technological marvel. Right. Already here in 1921. Um, Although it was still considered quite a luxury and somewhat dangerous, too, because they were using toxic chemicals for cooling. However, things changed in 1928 with the invention of Freon, which was a, a much safer cooling agent. By the end of the 1930s, more than 40% of American homes had an electric fridge. And that number, of course, would skyrocket following World War II. So whatever happened to this, the remnants of this ice business and those ice men that used to come by the house? Well, things got pretty dismal. By the end of World War II, you know, the old ice boxes, um, most of them were just headed for the, the garbage heap or the antique store. Most of the commercial users um, who were still using ice, I mean, they had refrigerating units and big walk-in coolers and freezers. And when they needed ice cubes, they had their own ice machines. You know, most restaurants, for example, started making their own ice. Many of the city's ice companies simply went under. But interestingly, it's not um, an industry that was completely killed off by the refrigerator. Because, of course, I can go to the store right now and pick up a big old bag of ice, and it's made and bagged, manufactured here in New York. Several ice manufacturers still exist in the city today, although their business has shifted quite a bit to meet the demands of today's ice market. One of these ice manufacturers is Hailstone Ice, which is located in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, which is a company that's been producing ice for more than 90 years. And it was featured in an August 30th, 2019 article written by Rachel Wharton in the New York Times. She wrote that the company's typical summer weekend clientele consists of, quote, 
a nearly constant stream of backyard barbecuers, street vendors, and snow cone scrapers, dollar water sellers, event planners with warm beers, DJs who need dry ice for smoky dance floors, the Dunkin' Donuts and the Shake Shacks with ice machine issues, and the one lady shipping a week's worth of food to Burning Man. (laughs) Now that is the New York ice scene that I know today. Still scraping by. For more information on the ice trade of the 19th and early 20th centuries, please visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where I'll have pictures of ice harvesting, some ice houses, maybe a little, some Tammany tainted ice trusts. Also visit us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at Bowery Boys. A huge thank you to those who have joined us on patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. It is your small monthly donation that keeps the show running. You're round, Greg, through all seasons, through the warm months and the ice cold months. <laughs> we really couldn't make the show without you. And of course, we have a range of thank you gifts and special features that are available to our patrons at patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. We have the, the, the Bowery Boys Movie Club and we have the after show conversation called The Takeout. We also have special Bowery Boys mugs and stickers and other fun swag that you can get for signing up. We want to thank recent patrons Joe, Mandy, Edward, Barbara, Audrey, Guy, Robin, Morgan, Don, and Alan. Join them. Join the party at patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. 